From the moment we're born and lock eyes with our parents, we are inspiring others. By showing up as a vessel of service, we not only help others, we help ourselves. Welcome to SOS Stories of Service, hosted by Teresa Carpenter, hear from ordinary people from all walks of life who have transformed their communities by performing extraordinary work. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 49th episode of Stories of Service, Ordinary People Who Do Extraordinary Work. I am the host of Stories of Service, Teresa Carpenter. And for this episode, I am extremely happy, like more happy, well, I'm always happy about guests, but this guest ex just, oh my gosh, blows it out of the park. This is my wonderful, dear friend, Tia McMillan. Tia, how are you doing today? Outstanding, super anxious, but very happy to be here. I am so happy you're here. And as I said, I, I am just so honored to have you here. I'm going to go ahead and read a little bit about her bio, give you guys a little information about Tia, ask a few questions. If you have questions for Tia, please feel free to, in the comments section, wherever you are joining us, if you're joining us from LinkedIn, Facebook, and if you're joining us from YouTube, don't forget to hit the subscribe button, hit the bell for, to get notifications for whenever we go live. And I'm just gonna get right into it. So after serving as a secretary, wedding planner, obituary writer, and sous chef, Tia Nicole McMillan found herself as an intern for the Department of Defense in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, and the rest is history. In her civilian capacity, she is the Defense Health Agency Public Affairs Liaison to the two defense health regions, 18 small markets, 62 standalone offices, and 20 large markets, managing strategic communications for all defense medicine assets worldwide. She is also a Reserve, Navy Reserve Public Affairs Officer currently assigned as a PAO to Commander U.S. Second Fleet. She holds three master's degrees, one in business and organizational communications from Northeastern University, one in management and leadership from the American College, one in public leadership from the University of San Francisco, and she is currently studying a fourth, fourth master's in advanced financial planning at the American College. She also holds a graduate certificate in women's leadership from Cornell University, is a fleet marine force warfare officer, and is joint professional military education one qualified. Outside of the office, she is a professor of business and communication courses at Tidewater Community College, where she serves as the curriculum designer and facilitator in the graduate, and she also, in addition to that, I'm sorry, she serves as the curriculum designer and facilitator in the graduate public leadership program at the University of San Francisco, and is a professor for the graduate organizational communications program at Northeastern University. She is also the proud owner of a resume writing business, helping veterans transition to federal and corporate positions. In a volunteer capacity, Tia serves as the American Legion Post 88 First Vice Commander and Veteran Service Officer as the Director of Administration for Thrive, which is Hampton Roads Young Professional Group. She has also developed a TED Talk style presentation on military sexual trauma and shares her personal MST story and the long path back to herself. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited, like I said, and I'm gonna first start off with the question that I ask all my guests who have served in the military or who are currently serving in the military, which is you're from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. What inspired you to serve in the United States Navy? 
<laughs> oh my, okay, I'll try to keep this like as short as possible. Um, growing up, we had the red Encyclopedia Britannicas in my room and I got bored and I read a lot and I read a lot of babysitter club books. And then whenever those ran out, I started reading through the encyclopedia and I got to Francis Scott Key. And I like just began this obsession with Francis Scott Key. And I would write a screenplay like every summer and my sister and I would like get on our horses and do the Battle of Fort McHenry for our friends and family and neighbors. Um, so I've always been a weird kid. Um, and then, um, I started my civilian career in the Navy first. So I started that in 2007 and we had seats to the army Navy game. And I sat in the sec navs booth, um, didn't know what a sec mm -hmm. nav was, um, but just happened to be there because of who invited me from our public affairs community. And I was encouraged to put in for a direct commission and who, who encouraged you? Oh my goodness. So we had um, Suzanne Spite, uh, who just passed from her cancer. Um, she she was really instrumental in pushing me to um, put in a package for Navy Public Affairs. Uh, I have a couple uncles who've never mm -hmm. really talked about their their service. They're uh, the Vietnam generation. And mm -hmm. so I think one of the things I've always struggled with is how do we build the narrative between those who raise their hand and say, I'll go send me and the civilians that they serve back at home. And so that was my interest in the public affairs community is how we shape that narrative and how we how we communicate what we do to the American public so that when our service members come back, they are welcomed and supported. That is that is a, a tough divide too, because as, 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 as many of you probably already know, we only have a certain percentage of people who raise their right arm and, and and swear to support and defend right. the constitution. And so there's a lot of people who don't really understand what this life involves and what it entails. And for you, especially in your unique capacity as a single mom, yeah. I, I think this was a, a very big step for you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, I think one of the hardest things being a single parent is not having support necessarily from the community. I think it confuses a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You know, why would you do that? You're educated. Why wouldn't you go and do something different? Like it's it's a hard divide between educated and the military. And I think that a lot of civilians don't understand that we have some of the most educated people in the military serving in operational capacities around the globe. But it's just this kind of odd assumption that if you're educated, then why would you, I mean, the military is for people that can't do anything else. And that's, that's so far from the truth. Um, being a single I parent, I think was really liberating because Trenton grew up, you know, <laughs> in a military family. And it's funny now we just got back from the American Legion boys state program for the state of Virginia. And Trenton's always, my son Trenton has always been more comfortable with older vets. Cause that's, I mean, I would go and pick him up from daycare and I'd bring him back to the office. And I, I, you know, was raised by a series of great executive officers that really understood that I was a single parent and were very accommodating when Trent would come into the office and help me work. You know? Right. Right. And you were balancing your reserve duties uh, right. for the Navy and all that entails. And of course I've had a couple of reserve officers on here who've talked a lot about that divide about how you're you're basically mm -hmm. a, a civilian working full time, but then you have this other job right. that you're balancing. And so, can you talk a little bit about how you balance that with your civilian? Sure, career? I just don't like this idea <laughs> of a work life balance doesn't exist. And so, for so many people like us who are trying to, you know, 
run a business, be a civilian, have mm -hmm. a family, stay present, be a reservist and, you know, enter these careers of service. Like, I wish somebody would have told me you're always going to let somebody down. So make sure that you know what your mission is and stick to that mission and, mm -hmm. you know, be adaptable and learn and grow and do all those things that we're taught to do. But at the same time, know that you're not going to balance a civilian career when you're on the Mount Whitney for three weeks, like that civilian career, you know, kind of steps aside and oh, by the way, so does your family. So I think that if we approach things for what they are, instead of this like idyllic world of, oh, we well, can do balance. It yeah, we can do it all. Sure. Mm -hmm. You absolutely can do it all, but it has to be balanced. You can't give a hundred percent all the time. So right. um, I work very closely with my civilian command to see, you know, what they're comfortable with. If I can do longer term orders because things are calmer or I have, you know, a deputy or I have reserve support in my own job. Um, I do that. And my family, I've always been very, very blunt that my career tends to come first, but, you know, now being able to work from home, you know, I can, I can watch Trenton when he gets home and, you know, he starts cooking mm -hmm. dinner and I, I set up in the kitchen. Right. So I'm, I like being, you know, the center of attention. So I like sitting up in the kitchen and seeing like the family interact around me and stuff. So I think it was, for me, it's trying to define what I think right looks like and then building all of these jobs and all, all of what I do, even the volunteer work to make sure it aligns with what I want to do. Because if you don't have a mission statement, you say yes to everything. You do. You do. And I know I look like I say yes to everything, but I'm very, you know, very cognizant about what I say yes to. And I make sure that I don't say yes unless I can give 110% of myself. And then if I can't, then I don't do it. Right. And one of the ways that you've been able to balance that, that I think there's a lot of people that don't understand is that especially because of COVID, there's been a proliferation of companies and organizations, including the military, who have embraced remote work. Right. And I feel that that really is a game changer in the way that we see yeah. certain jobs. Not every job can do it, but there are a lot of jobs, especially in our craft of communications and PR and producing products. Right. Um, we got to go to events and we have to support the real-time events, but there's a lot of planning and there's a lot of assessment and other things that can be done anywhere. And so can you tell the audience as a, you're a GS, um, I don't know if you want me to say your pay grade as a GS, 14. you're a GS 14 and you worked very hard to get to a place to where you were very determined that this was going to be a remote job. And can you tell the audience a little bit about how you did that? Yeah, I think so being able to work from home when COVID hit, mm -hmm. um, Naval Medical Forces Atlantic, for the most part, went fully remote. And I don't think I recognized, and I'm sure if, if I have family listening, this will be a, a laughing factor <laughs> for you, but I didn't realize how neurodiverse I was. I just, I mean, when you're in your own brain, you think it's normal, right? right. So when I got home and I could have my two laptops set up and my two cell phones, and I could be listening in on a call, writing PAG, doing graphic design public and affairs like, guidance, public yeah. affairs guidance, and like doing three or four, you know, different things at a time and doing it effectively. I was like, oh my gosh, like, not only do I feel like I'm a greater value add, but I was putting in an additional 35 hours per pay period. And I still felt like I had a much better work-life balance. 
Um, you know, I roll out of bed at six. I'm a morning person. So I roll out of bed at like, you know, six. I'm usually on the trail with Clove, my dog by, you know, 6.15. We do two to four miles. And I would call my overseas sites because they were awake and they felt so supported because I'm the first call they're getting at six right. in the morning, you know? So it was just a much better way of working with myself and working in my own environment and not like causing chaos like i didn't have an office behind a closed door so mm -hmm. me operating to the best of my ability is slightly chaotic in an office environment but mm -hmm. i also got to the point where i was done conforming um i'm at a point in my life where i really like who i am i like how i think and i wanted to be able to bring all of myself to an organization and that's what i found with defense health agency um, they're very open to telework and to remote work and I mean, we're pretty darn big communications team and everybody is very professional um, and being, you know, the market public affairs officers. I have all the MTFs and markets around the globe. So it doesn't really make sense to be in one location when I'm meeting with, you know, 22 to 25 different sites a day. Mm -hmm. um, so I think for me, it was it goes back to knowing who I am in that mission and being able to operate in a way that was most effective for myself and really, I mean, a huge benefit for the government. I, I don't mind giving extra time because it's easy and my laptop's open and I'm there right. and it's just, it's it's fun to me. I really enjoy that. But likewise, I would advocate for people who want to be in an office, you know, workers know how they work best. And I think the best thing, you know, any, any hiring organization can do is really listen to how an employee works best. And if it doesn't work for the company, then it doesn't work. But most of the time we know how we work best and being able to work how we work best is a, so much more efficient for me personally and effective for the organization. And it's given you the freedom to be able to travel. Um, yeah. You know, Tia is in a very similar situation to myself because, her, you know, my husband's preparing our property to become an Airbnb. Right. Your husband is preparing a second property in Pennsylvania to, to be a rental agreement. Right. And you're able to travel remotely and check up on that and see those things while still giving back to the organization and giving back to not only this, uh, your, your company, but then you also teach and you do academia. So tell us a little bit about how the, the, the road towards academia. I am a nerd, right? I, I'm <laughs> I have four master's degrees for a reason. I learn best, um, in an academic environment and, there is something about teaching that I don't get from any of my other jobs. Um, I think teaching, for one, it makes me uh, very cognizant of you know what what theories we're talking about in the communications field, in business, and small mm -hmm. team, you know, group management, organization. But it's it's just a completely different environment. And so I started teaching first at Elizabethtown College and Messiah College in Pennsylvania. And then when I moved to Sicily, I taught at University of Maryland University College, now the global campus. And there's something about being who I needed as a 17 year old, just, you know, trying to get by and have, you know, being a single parent. And I teach at some really great colleges, but one of my favorite jobs is teaching at the community college level, because you have so many people mm. that are just trying to better themselves yep. and better their lives. And during COVID, you know, they'd come in with a kid on either, you know, hip or whatever and say, I'm so sorry, I have to give my speech. Well, of course, like, thank you for showing up is I, I just really I appreciate, you know, people trying to do anything to better their lives. And if I can be a soft place to land while also, you know, being 
a rigorous grader and, you know, focusing on academia and, and, you know, the theoretical knowledge and then, you know, the practical experience that you need for a public speaking course, so to speak. I want to do that. Like, I want to show up for people mm -hmm. in that way. Um, it's something I'm very passionate about. You know, having, being on my fourth master's, I see what a lot of good professors do and I see things that are really frustrating to me. Mm -hmm. So while I'm, you know, taking classes, I'm able to tweak my own courses to be more accessible, more inclusive. Um, there's a couple things I've done, you know, over the last decade that I don't like. And, you know, one of the things that I think is really important is I teach eight week courses and, you know, we get our evaluations at the end and like, that's really helpful for the next class. But part of my midterm, I include five questions on my midterm. That's, you know, how are you doing? Where aren't you? Where am I not helping you? Mm -hmm. What are you most concerned about? What is keeping you from being your best self in this class? And getting that in the, at the midway point, I'm allowed to make like real tangible changes. changes for the students yeah. that are in the class. That's so important. And and a lot of leaders don't do that. I've never, you know, how, how nice would it be if like leaders would, you check know, in. would check in with their <laughs> yeah. people and instead of just giving them feedback, they, they went to their people midway through at their midterms and said, you know what, how am I doing? What can I be doing differently? How can I serve you better? Right. And I think that's just an amazing thing that you did. And then the other thing that you said that really stood out to me is your love of serving the co uh, community college yeah. uh, environment. Um, Joe Pletzer is another guest I had on my show. Uh, Bill Gay is uh, at PR, he does for community colleges in San Diego. Um, and I will tell you, anybody that's worked in that environment will, will say how rewarding it is because you're really getting those, those young people who that's their option. Right. You know, they, they don't have, let's say, a lot of money to get you know, they couldn't maybe get the loans or they didn't have the other means to get into the fancy schools mm -hmm. and they're just doing the best they can or they're older and they're returning back to school. And it's just such an, a supportive and welcoming environment. And having been in the community college system myself, mm -hmm. I, I have so much respect and admiration uh, for starting along that path. Right. And I think there's, you know, that in trade schools, there's just something to be said uh, for doing that and starting in that fashion. And so I applaud you for, for taking that on and doing the community college route as an, in the academia world. But then not only are you doing that as to transition is you also have a, just a great passion for public service. And so tell me a little bit about that, your last master's and sort of how you're, you're even inspiring your son and, and now your son is doing a lot of these <laughs> things in the public service world. So, yeah. so tell us, tell me a little bit about that. So uh, the last master's that I did was at the University of San Francisco and it's a master's in public leadership. And the program is sponsored really by um, an organization, a nonprofit called the Institute for Second Service. And the founder, Seth, has a heart for helping veterans, those in the medical community, um, military spouses, enter a career of second service. So there's a lot of us when we get out of the military, it's what do I do next? Like right. my sailors, my Marines, mm -hmm. what, how do I give back? What do how I do? I do? Service? Right. And sometimes you need that, you know, that formal education to go in and say, okay, well, I want to run for school board. I want to run for Congress. Like, how do I start a campaign? What's grassroots campaigning? What's get out the vote? How do I use these platforms? What's nation builder? Like, how do I figure out what my, who and what my constituents are? 
Um, and it's it's a formal master's that really helps you think about a, a, a second career in public service. Um, it was important to me because I really believe in local government. I would love to do a run for city council when it's when the time is right. Obviously, very hard to do with a full time job. Yes. So like Tia, the 60 year old is really <laughs> pumped about city council. But Tia, the 34 year old is still, you know, planning the next three decades. Um, but part of that was, you know, getting involved in the public leadership program. And oh, my gosh, you meet the coolest people oh, and the coolest professors. Um, there are scholarships available. So if anyone is looking for a career in second service and wants to apply for the master's, please, you know, just send me a message. Um, but I think what you get out of that program is you're learning from people who are the best of the best in their field. Mm -hmm. And it is it is definitely bipartisan. And I think that one of the one of the things that we bring to the table as vets is being able to reach across the aisle and say, OK, we agree on outcomes. Right. We agree that. You know, we agree on human rights. We mm -hmm. agree that we need smarter immigration policies. We agree that healthcare and mental health needs an overhaul. We might not agree on how, mm -hmm. but we've seen a bunch of different hows in our career. Right. We've seen we've seen how different people from diverse backgrounds That's and a great thoughts point. come together and and you know meet our command mission. Right. So why can't we do that in the why can't we do that in Congress? Why can't, why can't we, can't we yeah. reach across the aisle and do it there? Why can't we do it when our people matter the most? Um, and I would say that's kind of what our program is. And you learn how to argue intelligently and in a way that's inclusive. Um, and I think that that's, that's one of the most important things we can do. Uh, a lot of times, you know, we see our veterans come in and they are, they're still in that like transition. And like for the vets out there who are going through transition, like it's okay to be upset all the time and, and realize that you have like some yeah. major anger issues or major like sadness issues like that that emotion you always go to is like i'm just sad like i saw a lost kitten poster the other day and i was like i'm really sad about that i probably shouldn't be this sad about a lost kitten you know but like just feeling those emotions and so sometimes you know we've spent 20 or 30 years serving and serving and serving and putting these emotions in a closet that now we're out of the military and what that closet still exists and yeah. we got to take our baggage with us so how do we do that while still serving you know, a second time, a, a career of se in second, a second career in service and do it efficiently and effectively. Right. In a way that will drive an outcome, because I, I know that it can be very frustrating uh, in, in, in legislative affairs only because a lot of times we find that people are very polarized and they're very divided. And, you know, you can even put a post um, that doesn't seem to be slamming, you know, slanted one way or the other. And I know this recently with something I put on abortion and immediately people thought that I, I was one way or the other about the issue. And, and really I'm just 100% undecided on how mm -hmm. I see it because it's so complicated of an issue. But because we're, we live in such a polarized and an emotional society, it's very hard to do that. And so I think having the military's perspective where we all have to come to the table as members of the armed forces and accomplish the mission. When mm -hmm. we're told by the president or the co or the combatant commands, uh, you're going to do this. Uh, we in the military, we put our differences and our polarizations aside and we just, we do it. We right. make it happen. And so I think there's a lot to be said for getting more veterans in Congress and having the ability to impact that change. And speaking of impacting change, I do want to now pivot to something a little more serious and a little bit more vulnerable. And as much as you're willing to share and as comfortable as you're willing to share, 
but you do mention uh, in your bio that you sent me that you have an experience with military sexual trauma and you are using that now to inspire others. Can you tell me a little bit about how that happened and what, what you, uh, what you are offering uh, to people um, to speak at events or, or what have you? Sure. Um, so my incident happened while I was deployed to Bahrain. Um, and in a way I feel like I did all the right things, all the, all the right things, right. All the, all the box checking. I checked myself into the MTF in Bahrain and just said, Hey, like, I don't like who I'm becoming. I'm very angry. I don't want to go out in groups anymore. I, I just am noticing these behavioral things and I don't like them. And so I almost immediately within probably two or three months of the incident, you know, met with a therapist who was really helpful and did a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy. But I was able to say, you know, pinpoint, these are the things I don't like. And then I came home. And when I came home, um, I'm really lucky to live in Hampton Roads and in Suffolk where we have a VA um, vet center. And so I was able to meet with a therapist there who's who's really fantastic. Um, around that same time, I enrolled in the Masters of Arts in Public Leadership program at you know, University of San Francisco. And you're supposed to do this like culminating project. And for a while, you'll laugh at this. And I know it's not supposed to be a funny topic, but I was like, tearing apart Space Force's public affairs, which I knew nothing about. And like, I'm totally un uneducated on, like I don't deserve an opinion on Space Force's public affairs. But I was like, well, it's But it was I something do. you could be detached from. Right, I was so detached. And mm, finally, you know, we're in like week four of a week six class and my professor, who's one of the best professors I have ever, ever worked with. Um, she said, no, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to fix sexual assault in the military. And she's like, then do that. And and why? Why did you want to fix sexual um, assault in the military? Because the way that we handle things is not the way right is. It's not what right looks like. And blaming red tape is not a good enough right. answer. We have people who commit sexual assaults, and, and your case included. And if you want to hear Tia's talk, uh, please reach out to her. Who are able to retire with full benefits? Full benefits. So in my case. Um, this person pled guilty twice, was found guilty twice, and retired with full benefits at rank. As a colonel. As a colonel. And so. will never have to face a darn thing. Yes. Ever. It, it won't be reported. Mm -hmm. um, he did get a general discharge, which... Um, but he's still getting was 80 to 1,000. Deal. Right. And, and, and it's that's not the reported thing. whenever he gets a civilian so. job. The people he works with will never know nope. that. And full medical benefits... Eighty to one hundred thousand dollars a year for the rest of his life. His spouse was allowed to testify about her benefits his, and his character and his wartime service was considered to be the priority. Yes. So when you go to a BOI, um, one board of the inquiry. Thank you. One of the the presets for the board is you need to take the defendant's entire career, not the victims, the the defendant's entire career into account. Um, being a combat marine that means more to the, um, this particular board than um, being accused, pleading guilty to- Pleading guilty, having witnesses- found guilty of four counts of aggressive assault. sexual assault. Yes. So, so the process is broken. Right. And I, I um, you know, I've worked with Senator Gillibrand. Um, I'm very happy to say that, you know, this administration put out an executive order this February stating that sexual assault is now a crime in the military. So that was this February, February, 2022, sexual assault mm -hmm. becomes a crime in the military. Um, there are, you know, across the aisle, this is something that our politicians care about. 
Um, and I, th I think our military does too. You we know, do. I speak to a bunch of different commands in Hampton Roads. And like I said, you know, I do that, I, I do a TED Talk style presentation. It's about 11 minutes. It talks about my full story and it offers a talk back session, QA. And then I ask the commands um, to be sure to have somebody on hand if somebody wants to, right. you know, talk to a professional. You know, yeah. and I am not a social worker. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And I think that is really important to have on hand. And you weren't advised of anything about your civil litigation rights either. No, no. And for me, that was really tricky. It took 18 months to go to trial. And um, I think I did everything right, you know, by way of the military, but nobody told me to pursue civil litigation. And of all the things I could do differently, that's what I would have right, done differently. Because that would have held him to a certain standard and a certain accountability that the military was able to provide. And it gets tricky there too. In my case, it didn't happen on base. It didn't happen on U.S. soil in Bahrain. So when I did reach out, people didn't want to take my case, despite it being what looked like a very easy case to try. There was no jurisdiction in Bahrain. Um, and a lot of a lot of the 50 states, um, their statute of limitations is only two years. So when military trial takes 18 months and then you aren't getting the outcome you want, you have, what, six months to, six months to file. pursue. And that's litigation. only if you knew about the civil it's litigation. Only, yeah. And you didn't. So and you have the means to pursue it. Like that's mm. tricky. That's true. Finding the right lawyer, right. finding somebody that will take on your case and all those sorts of things. And, and you know, I've had a sexual assault uh, survivor on, on my podcast before. Yeah. And uh, it is enough to convince me that the system is broke and not just the two people I've interviewed, but the hundreds of stories that I've seen online and just understanding this issue is I, I do believe that to a certain extent, there are certain accountability issues. Stuart Scheller talks about this as well. Um, that we can help fix. And if we can be part of the solution, I, I, I fully intend to be part of the solution. And that's what these podcasts are about. Right. That's why we have these shows. That's why I do this in my civilian capacity. It's not because I'm slamming the military, but because we want right. to make the military better. I think the military wants to be better. I, I mean, do. the fact that, I mean, I just spoke, I spoke at the USS McFall and I spoke at Second Fleet just in the last two months. And the fact that these two major operational commands want to have this conversation and are encouraging people to ask hard questions. Like I don't get easy questions. At I'm these sure things. you don't. I get in and I want the invasive <laughs> questions because yeah. how often can we sit down and have really tough conversations? And I would also offer like our young people don't necessarily have these conversations with their parents and we're the first stop that they get. So we have 17 year olds, you know, driving our submarines. Right. Do we talk boundaries with them and do we do it in a right. way that isn't ostracizing and isn't shaming? Right. So that they can ask the right. hard questions and they can, you know, use real language and say, well, what does consent really look like? Right. When, and and what 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 is hookup culture? And and do you really and not blaming the victims at all, but I mean I can tell you, I came from an environment where, you know, it was cool to lose my virginity. It shouldn't have been cool to lose my virginity. Right. It should have been something sacred and something special. But in, but instead, it was my way of breaking boundaries and rules so that I could be accepted and be liked and be loved. Mm -hmm. And and I think we have to change that culture. And the only way we change that culture is by valuing people more. Right. And being able to show people that there is a culture in our military that uh, sadly you know, glamorizes drinking, glamorizes partying. And until some of those things change, uh, sadly, people are going to get wrapped up in that. And in your case, isn't even about that. Your case is about you were sober. You were <laughs> sitting in a car and, and she'll tell them more of the story later when she does her TED Talks, if you guys are interested. But it, it's just one of those situations where 
I, I really feel that the military can and should do better. I feel very strongly about this, right. and I know you do too. Right. So. And I think we will get there. I think that we have the right leadership um, to, to really have those tough conversations. I, I really, I mean, every single person that I have come across doing this work, I've been so impressed with, and I've been so accepted by. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm very, I'm very confident that we will get there. So we have some questions uh, from Krista. I don't have my glasses. Okay, I, I'll read the questions. Um, how supportive was your leadership when you reported your sexual assault? Oh, gosh. Okay. That's a complicated like question. Like the real answer? Yeah. yeah. Say the real um, answer. I didn't get to report it. It was reported by a bystander who went to our lieutenant colonel, who was the SARC at the command, and basically said, hey, I witnessed this. Will I get in trouble if I don't report it? Right. So relationships are complicated, yes. right? So I have spent uh, the better part of three years really frustrated with this individual for the why. And like, ultimately, like, I think one of the toughest things is this, this gentleman is a Marine, wasn't, or I guess he still is a Marine. I haven't really stalked him in a long time, but he's a Marine. <laughs> he was in the vehicle when it happened and he watched it happen and did nothing. Right. And so I try to put myself in his shoes of like, what was it like to flight, uh, what is it? Fight and flight, flight, flight and freeze. freeze. Right. He was probably in freeze. And when you're a Marine, I can't even imagine being like, no, like if I ever saw this happen, I would you never do anything shit out of the guy, but yeah, right. sure you will until your until body happens. doesn't until your body. And he was right. probably in a freeze response. And so like, and he having, felt guilty afterwards. I know. And I'm sure that he's been dealing with things differently for the last three years too. Right. And so I try to, I, sometimes relationships are complicated. Right. So like, I am really frustrated that nobody asked me what I wanted. Um, but I can also imagine the shame and trauma of not doing what you're supposed to do in that situation because your body just wouldn't do it. So um, anyway, I did not report it. It was reported for me. Um, I really struggled with what right looked like. I got some bad gouge from friends at the command. Um, but I will say there are, we we are, we had our commanding general. Um, he handled it in a way I discuss in my TED talk. But there were also two colonels that I thought the first colonel, um, he was ops at the time. And then the other one was chief. No, no, no. The first colonel was chief of staff. The other one was ops. And they both handled things so graciously and they were, they were so respectful and so kind. And I mean, I'm still, I would consider myself friends with one of the colonels and he and I have, you know, maintained a good professional relationship and I'm, I'm still impressed by his support. I'm still impressed that Good. Having these conversations aren't no isn't easy. And so when we met up, he asked me like, "How are you? How do you feel about the outcome of trial? How are you doing?" And just having somebody that cared mm-hmm. um, was really cool. So I will say I have mixed feelings about how the command handled it. I'm very pleased with the two colonels that gave me such great support. Um, I did report it up, and you know this. This is the I think the most heartbreaking part for me was reporting it to um, two of our Navy public affairs reserve 06s who did nothing and said nothing. Yeah. And so um, I'm very pleased with our over my overall community support. I mean, the public affairs community from the most senior level um, to my peers were just wonderful. But it's it's a real punch in the face when leadership doesn't care. And I will say like, for, for leaders out there that don't know how to have this conversation, I would, it's okay not to know. And it's okay to pick up the phone and say, hey, 
I got your email. I saw that this happened. I'm not going to have the right words, but I just want you to know that I'm holding space for you. And maybe we can find the right words together. And I'm probably going to butcher this Tia, but yeah. just know that I'm thinking about you and I'm going to, I'm going to figure out what right looks like, but I, I, I'm also not entirely sure how to have this conversation and that's okay. Admitting that you don't know how to have such an intimate and tough conversation is okay but freaking show up for your people. I yeah. mean, as leaders, that's all we can do is show up. Um, that's the most important thing we do. So if you're not doing that. I agree. And I think sometimes when these subjects come up, um, sadly, um, you know, nobody, I, I always have this theory that nobody goes through life unscathed. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of us have childhood traumatic experiences that we haven't dealt with. And I've learned as I've gotten older, there are more and more people in the military who have childhood, uh, what I call uh, adverse childhood experiences, ACE, there's actually a term for it. And I believe that they are at the root of a lot of the issues with resilience. And mm. um, I think what happens when you face one of these issues, um, there are especially, uh, you know, women are the same way, but you know, most of those in charge are still men. And, and men often don't have the language or they don't have the tools mm -hmm. to really help somebody navigate something that's so sensitive. Either they've had an experience in their past that they're not fully over, or they've never been given the tools within themselves to know how to talk on an intimate level with somebody who's not their spouse. Mm -hmm. They can talk to their spouse maybe to a certain extent, but, but that's pretty much it. And so when somebody comes to them with something like this, they haven't learned the language on how to really help you through it. And so I think what you said just really hits home that they don't have to have the language. They no. don't have to know how to talk to you. They can just say, I'm holding space for you. I'm there for you. I don't know what else to say other than that, right. but I will do what I can to put you in touch with so-and-so, or right. I have this female colleague who I think can really talk this through with you because I'm not comfortable having right. this conversation. And so I think that sort of answers your question too, Krista. You asked the second question, which was when you reported the crime, how effective was the EO Sapper CCS? I find there's a major disparity when minority victims report sexual assault, sexual harassment when compared to white victims. Yeah, I, I had a great experience, um, not with the SARC, but with my Sapper. Um, my Sapper was phenomenal. My JAG was phenomenal. Um, I'm, well, I, I'm, I don't think I'm actually currently a sapper. I think I let that go, but I was a sapper VA and it's definitely taught me. I think one of the most important things we can do as a sapper VA is once you get somebody, you know, who calls, you get, um, you, you get somebody who needs sapper representation is to say, do you want me to represent you? Or do you want me to find somebody who's yeah. a better fit for you or who looks like you? And, I completely agree with you. I think that if you're a minority, um, and you brought this up, I I come from a huge position of privilege where I'm an officer. I was sober. I was dressed appropriately. I fought like hell. I had three witnesses. He pled guilty on his you're own white. twice. Mm -hmm. I'm white. I yeah. have the fund. I have the financial ability to hire a lawyer if I need to. None of that mattered. I mean, maybe it did. I mean, you got a general discharge, you know, but I would, I have yeah. a very hard time seeing how somebody, a black MC2, you know, would be able to have that same position of privilege right. that doesn't exist. No, it doesn't. Um, but I it agree. is, if it is a call 
to make sure that we have diverse representation across every aspect and every, of our military. And every pay grade. And then that's one of the things that I talk to you about all the time is that until we have more diverse groups at the top, mm -hmm. women like myself are going to continue to be lonely and isolated because unfortunately I am never, I don't care. You know, there are some people out there that say, oh, we can have more male allies and all those other things. And I think that's great. But guess what? There is no confident alpha male who is usually going to be the one leading everything, who is going to have the same kind of friendship and the same kind of closeness with me, which is not appropriate with me that he will have with another man. And that is on that is honestly going to always sort of ostracize some of the women and maybe some other women leaders can see this differently, but it has been my experience. And I believe the only solution to this, and we do need the male allies to help push us to the top, but the solution to this ultimately is a better mix, a better representation of black, Hispanic, and women at the most senior levels in organizations. Yeah, diversity no. isn't black and white, it's green. No. And if we want the most diverse, impactful military that is doing real things and is fighting operationally and winning that fight, it has to be representative of our people. And that is across a gender and experience um, and ethnicity spectrum. And you're going to get the best ideas that way. You're going to get people who see things differently. You're going to get people who approach problems differently. You're going to get better outcomes because different people are going to bring to the table challenges. And it's not going to have this groupthink mentality where things stay the same. And, 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 and that is unfortunately what we have seen time and time again in the military mm -hmm. is that there's this baseline level of just getting by. And until we have those diverse groups at the top, that, that, that is not going to change. So that's really what, what, what this is about. Mm -hmm. I mean, for, for me and for you and for what we, for what we, uh, we promote. And again, she says, Krista says the, there's affinity groups and they could be providing more support, uh, and, and help to the victims. And I do hope that in the future, we we promote those groups and we help work with those groups to showcase these issues because they're so important. And what would your advice be to somebody who might be listening to this podcast now who is in a situation where they're either being bullied in the workplace, they're facing sexual assault, or they're facing sexual harassment? I think you need to figure out, it goes back to your mission statement to me. Um, going to trial and going through trial and seeing an outcome for somebody who comes from a place of privilege has really changed how I give advice on reporting. Um, that's a lot to ask somebody to go through and to stand trial for an outcome that probably isn't great. Right. Um, I would talk to somebody in the command if you can, if you have a safe space in the command and you have the means to report something, um, to you know, file a restricted report in a safe way to a safe person, I would do that. The folks that we always that we name in the military aren't safe. I don't feel safe talking to a chaplain. There's very few chaplains I've ever felt safe and seen by. Um, so for me personally, chaplains aren't a safe space. Um, I understand. And I mean, onesie twosie, sure, mm -hmm. but. But it's being seen. But it's it's being, it's being seen, seen and, it's finding, and not judged. And then there's rules for restricted and unrestricted. So if I come to you, that's an unrestricted report, mm -hmm. you know? So it's knowing those rules and knowing how to protect yourself 
And if you don't have somebody at the command, I, I mean, it's seeking counsel. So the VA is now open. Um, the VA, regardless of active duty reserves, will see anybody for military sexual trauma. Good. That that op that option is open to anybody. Um, I think the best piece of advice I can give is find somebody who is safe. Right. But know what the reporting requirements are so that you're not putting that safe person in a, a position where they position have to report it. Where they have to report it. Um, and it's okay. It's okay to do things differently. Yeah. Right. Like it's okay to stick to your guns and to, um, to not do it either. I mean, I think, you know, we talked about this a little bit today earlier, but it's okay if the military isn't the right fit. It's okay if that civilian job that's bullying you isn't the right fit. It's okay to say, no, I'm I'm good. I don't need to do this anymore. Um, and I think that so often we don't think that we have We don't an think out. that's an option. We right. don't think we have an out because we feel like we're abandoning the organization or we're abandoning the people when really we could be thriving in another right. environment, being seen by people who get us right and by and and i've struggled with the same thing i struggled with it in germany as we've talked mm -hmm. you know not being able to be seen by by people because they just don't understand who we are and i think that you really have to look at an organization and say am i the right fit for the organization is the organization the right fit for me and can i give back and be of service right elsewhere and that's okay too. Right. So, and the self-awareness matters, right? Like I'm a very overwhelming person and I give 110% <laughs> to everything I do. So I get a pretty good understanding. Like mm -hmm. when I applied for the job at DHA, one of my questions for, you know, you know, the comms team was, am I actually who you want? Because the last thing I want to do is be the person that's keeping my boss up at night in frustration. <laughs> like that's not, that's yeah. not a world I want to live right, in, you know, right. but I also need to be able to be in a situation where I can give 110%. And it's not no Tia stick to your swim lane. And I don't care about any of your other ideas. That organization's not Isn't a good the right fit, fit for, for me. You. But I think I, so we talked about this also a little bit earlier today, but I'm also in a place where I can say I can step away, right? Mm -hmm. I can say, okay, well, this was fun. I'm going to go make an, a, a difference somewhere else. Um, and I recognize that 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 also comes from a place of privilege of, you know, having the financial stability to be able to make those decisions. Um, and that's not the case for everybody. It's not. But you, you had advantages in your path. You worked very hard and you built this life. But we would all be we would all be remiss if we didn't understand that not everybody starts off life at the same place. Mm -hmm. A person in a third world country who doesn't have, you know, any money whatsoever uh, is, is not going to be in the same place or the same start or a person who has immense trauma mm -hmm. is not starting at the same place as someone like yourself. And I think that's okay to be able to acknowledge mm -hmm. that it's, it's okay to acknowledge. That. I believe that there's this level of privilege or non-privilege that everyone has. Right. And you just, you, you do the best you can with the tools that you've been given. And that's why it is so important never to compare yourself with someone else. Right. Because you did not start and you do not stop at the same place. And all you really should do and can do is maybe look at where you were five years ago. Look at where you were a year ago. Look at where you were two weeks ago. Look at where you were the day before and try to build your life based on that. Would you right. agree with that? Yeah. I mean, every day be better. And I mean, that can be anything that can be perfecting your favorite pasta recipe that can be realizing that you haven't gone to your son's tennis match in the last two matches. And right. You know, you move some stuff around the show, like 
whatever better looks like for you, just do it. Just like do figure it. out, figure out a way to be better in one aspect of your life every day. And it could be as simple as I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to make my bed. Yeah. Like that's huge. That is huge. Yep. I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to do one load of laundry. <laughs> awesome. I'm going to fold that stupid fitted sheet by throwing it in a ball oh, in the closet, it. yes. but it's in the closet, yes. you know, like figure out what better looks like. And it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be, well, I'm going to go pursue a master. Like, no, who cares? No. Do what works for I you. I don't compare my life to Tia's. No, I, I would be exhausted. If I, and you could never, like you said, no. you'd never want to do a podcast. No, hell so. no, this is terrible. <laughs> So, so that, that, that is our lesson for today. Um, to close this out, where can people find you? Oh gosh. Um, well, we have family dinner every Sunday. So just like show up, that's fine. I'll cook for anybody. That's a very literal answer to your question. Um, no, I'm, I'm sure you'll tag me on all your social media Which platforms. I have. Just reach out. I'm, I am always here. Um, my, per, my business website is heapsofhelp.com. You can always reach me there at a direct email is, is posted on that website, but I like to think I'm very accessible. So feel free, just, you know, reach out. I'll monitor comments probably for a day until I forget. <laughs> um, but no, reach out or reach out to Teresa. I mean, we talk at least daily, yes. if not all day. So right. yeah, I, um, I will help you get in touch with Tia should you need to. Is there anything else that I did not ask you about that you want to close with? Oh gosh, as a public affairs officer, I feel like I should have like, right? Because I'm ready that's response. Our, that's like our, our go-to question. Go question at the end of any interview is we always ask, you know, because we want people, if there was a question that we didn't think to ask, or you guys in the audience didn't think to ask, I wanted to give you that opportunity. And if you don't have anything else to say, that's okay too. I mean, I'll just talk all day. Um, no, I think one of the, one of the best things I've learned about our relationship. And I'm, for those of you who don't know, you know, our backgrounds and political backgrounds, I mean, we are very, very, very different people. And I think, Oh yeah, that's a great point. One of the things I love the most <laughs> about our relationship is if I think I'm like a hundred percent right about something, I'm going to send it to Teresa and see what <sighs> her brain and her people would think about it. Because as a communicator, if I'm just sending my ideas to the people who think like me, I'm mm -hmm. not actually going to reach an aud the audience that I want to. And so, you know, I'm the same way. Right. And yeah. like, we'll meet for, you know, four hour brunches <laughs> once a week, just to make sure that we're doing what right looks like and, you know, run those ideas ag against somebody who thinks so differently, differently and sees these issues differently. So differently. And she if you're leans not more left, I lean more towards right. We sort of meet in the middle and, uh, you know, I, I, but I'm also not so hard. Like I'm not polarized. Like I, I believe that that's where we reach again to use a congressional metaphor. We reach across the yeah, aisle yeah. and we find common ground. Well, you're also the first person to be like, wait, I don't actually, I'm not actually researched on that. I just feel some kind of way. So let me research it and I'll get back to it next mm -hmm. week's brunch. And right. I love that. Like, yeah. Tell me when you're not researched about something, or you'll bring something up, yeah, and I'm like, I have no idea who you're talking about. <laughs> right, like, like the death trial. Yeah, like I went on and on about the death trial. I never heard this. You're like, yeah, I'm I like, don't care. I'll research it, and we'll talk about it later. <laughs> but I love that. I love being yeah. able to be like such close friends with somebody who thinks so differently. Yeah. But at the same time, is like, well, no. If if you're gonna give me your time and your expertise, then I want to at least you know be well researched to come into this conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, I know. I would tell anybody like for the conversations we have, I only have one rule when it comes to conversing with my friends. Is this a vent or are you looking for advice? Mm -hmm. Don't ask for both in the same. So, um, yeah, we have incredibly productive brunches and productive meetups and we're always sort of strategizing where our next goals are. So right? I'm grateful for the last two years. Me of too. No, I, know, I'm <laughs> I hate it. I know. But I know. Like, build your coalition yes. with people that you can 
get lost in brunch with for four hours. And like (laughs) you bring your speeches, I bring my laptop and like, it really is a deep dive into what can we be doing? And we are very open about finances. We're very good at pushing each other according to each other's mission statements. Right. Um, and what but, we want to achieve and yeah. what we want to achieve. But I would tell you, like, you're the best accountability partner I have because you listen to what I actually want and you hold me accountable. Um, but I would tell anyone else out there, like, build your coalition and make sure your coalition thinks differently than you do. That's a, such a good advice. You're right. I love people who think differently and I love people who disagree with me. I know. Look at I, 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 oh, I, get, I get very happy when somebody disagrees with me on a point. You guys yeah. will see it on social media all the time. So anyway, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we got a nice little com- kind comment here from Suzanne Brugler. She says, love this. Thank you for sharing your difficult journey on this topic. And thank you for providing the platform for this conversation. And we hope Thanks, you guys Suzanne. enjoyed it. It was really serious, but I think sometimes we have to hold space for these serious conversations in order to push change. And one day uh, I hope to be a part of that change. And I'm just so thankful that I have you as a friend. And thank you guys so much for joining us. I hope you have an amazing rest of your Sunday. And uh, till next time, have a great day. Talk to you all later. Bye-bye now.